Support for this episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere is brought to you by MX Publishing, with the largest catalog of new Sherlock Holmes books in the world. New novels, biographies, graphic novels, and short story collections about Sherlock Holmes. Find them at mxpublishing.com. And by the Wes Express, the premier publisher of books about Sherlock Holmes and his world. Find them online at wessexpress.com. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, episode 218, Arthur Conan Doyle, Sportsman. I hear of Sherlock Everywhere, since you became a astronomer. In a world where it's always 1895, comes I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, a podcast for devotees of Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the world's first unofficial consulting detective. I've heard of you before. You're Holmes the meddler, Holmes the busybody, Holmes the Scotland Yard jacket office. <laughs> the game's afoot as we discuss goings-on in the world of Sherlock Holmes enthusiasts, the bigger shooter regulars, and popular culture related to the great detective. As we go to press, sensational developments have been reported. So join your hosts, Scott Monty and Burke Walder, as they talk about what's new in the world of Sherlock Holmes. You couldn't have come at a better time! Four! I'm not exactly sure how we should start this out, Bert, but either way... Welcome to I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast for Sherlock Holmes devotees where it's always 1895. I'm Scott Monty. I'm Bert Wolder. And Bert, I hope you have your sporting gear with you. I've got my helmet, I've got my shoulder pads, I've got my knee guards and my boxing gloves. In other words, <laughs> it's just another ordinary day here. Perfect. Well, this is full contact conversation, so uh, you sound like you're ready for anything. Do you have your single stick, though? I do. In fact, I've got two of them, and I was really troubled about that because, well, you get the idea. Yeah, well, that, would that make it a double stick then? Well, that's what I was alluding oh. to. You know, I was baffled by that. Wow. I've got a But court- you know what I did? What, Go I ahead. found if I took the umbrella, I found if I took the umbrella out of my pina colada, I could park <laughs> the extra stick over there. <laughs> Always planning ahead. I like that. And you've got refreshment yeah. too. So that's good. Keep yeah. hydrated. Yeah. Keep hydrated. I'm. I am. Excellent. Well, I have a quarter staff. Actually, it's a buck and a quarter quarter staff, but I'm not telling you that. Uh, welcome, everyone, to uh, this episode. We're going to talk about all things related to sport and Conan Doyle. Should be a wide-ranging conversation, and we will introduce you to our guest in just a moment. A little housekeeping first. If you would like, you can find the show notes for this episode at ihose.co slash ihose218, all lowercase. That'll take you directly to the I of Sherlock Everywhere website where you can find links and ways to support the show and if we couldn't uh, if we could remind you now is the time to go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review it helps other people find the show and we do appreciate all the support we've gotten from you from PayPal and Patreon it helps us keep the lights on around here and keeps the show going so thank you very much and we welcome your comments whenever you get the chance, either responding to that entry on the show notes or you can simply email us at comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. 
we love hearing from you. So stay tuned, because right after the interview, we've got another chance for you to win a great prize. Whoops. Mark Alberstadt, master bootmaker and BSI, has been a Sherlockian since his early teens when he began reading the stories from his father's two-volume Doubleday edition. When he discovered the wider world of Sherlock Holmes, he was fortunate enough to become a regular correspondent with none other than John Bennett Shaw, who encouraged Mark to start a local club in Halifax, Nova Scotia, which he did all while still in high school. That club, Dispense Monroe's, continues to meet and is the Sherlockian achievement of which Mark is most proud. In addition, Mark and his wife Joanne edit Canadian Homes, the quarterly journal of the bootmakers of Toronto. And Mark was invested into the Baker Street Irregulars in 2014 as Halifax. How appropriate. And how appropriate to have you with us today, Mark. Thank you. It was uh, that's that's quite the introduction, and uh, I'm glad you brought in John Bennett Shaw. He was instrumental in uh, me being here today to talk about sports. Absolutely. Well, we've uh, we've talked with you before about uh, Canada and Sherlock Holmes from uh, the BSI uh, man uh, not manuscript series. That's the um, international series. So uh, that's right. You and the, the late great Peter Calamai edited that together. That's right. It was it was a, a labor of love. L a b o u r. It came from Canada. Unfortunately, uh, I think all those got edited out by some American editor. Uh, My but goodness. The, uh, the book was a lot of fun, and uh, here we are today to talk sports, which that book really didn't touch on very much. No, it didn't. And you know what? My correction, uh, we spoke with Peter for that episode. That was episode you, 121. You so um, I, I thought we had you on the show. I guess we haven't yet. Is that is that the case? No. Uh, no, I think we. you and I did a little spot interview after I got invested. Yes. Uh, the, ne- the next morning uh, in the uh, in the Huckster's room. And I think that uh, that has been my my experience. Uh, on air with you, um, but I've been with you through so many episodes. (laughs) That's great. Well, why don't we then back the truck up and uh, ask you to share with everyone how you first came in touch with Sherlock Holmes? Well, with Sherlock, as you mentioned, it was through my dad's uh, two-volume Doubleday. Um, my parents have always been great readers, and there was all, the house was always full of books, magazines, newspapers, uh, at least one daily newspaper, and um, news magazines and everything. And uh, early on, I remember seeing those two black volumes of Doubleday and reading the story, and it was, you know, the, the paper was super thin back then, and uh, just enjoying them uh, and reading them as, as as a young teen. And then somehow I, I stumbled into a used bookstore and found Duall's Universal and uh, found all the, uh, the, the mentions of the clubs around the world. And for some reason, I started writing to them. And uh, because the list was alphabetical, one of the first ones I wrote to was the Brothers Three Moriarty. And just by chance, it happened to be John Bennett Shaw. And he wrote back, of course, <laughs> as he would. Uh, not everybody did write back. And um, 
he and I had a correspondence monthly for years and years. And he knew I was involved in sports. I was a sports writer uh, for a while. And um, I, I wrote sports at the uh, university newspaper and professionally as well. And uh, he mentioned Conan Doyle in sports. And he also sent me uh, an article from uh, Sports Illustrated on Sherlock Holmes Sportsman. And uh, he said, here's a topic that you should do. Uh, and sure enough, years later, here we are talking about it. Um, you know, very much thanks to John Bennett Shaw. That is wonderful. It comes full circle, doesn't it? It, it really does. It's, uh, you know, the, the Sherlockian world, as you well know, is so friendly and, and so wide uh, that no matter what your topic is, you can find some niche. And um, mine is Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes and sports. Absolutely. I, want, I wonder what John's, um, what brought that to mind for John? Because when I think of great irregulars who might also be called sportsmen, John, 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 John's not on the like, top of the list. No, <laughs> not, no. not at the top. Uh, Unless I, I you think, count viewing, viewing sports. You know, he would have been big. Yeah, uh, he was big. That, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he, he would have been big in the viewing sports. I, I think he just uh, recognized my interest. Ah. And and uh, certainly wanted to encourage it. Uh, he he was so encouraging. Uh, you know, I was, I was a teenager when I first contacted him, and he was so encouraging. He sent me clippings, uh, but once a month I'd get this Manila envelope just full of stuff. He 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 had doubles and triplicates and stuff, and he'd just send it off to me. And there'd be newspaper clippings from all over the world, and occasionally uh, there'd be um, a bit of sports related stuff. Um, ben Wood and I. Uh, from present pleasant places of Florida, um, he and I used to exchange headlines clipped out of the uh, the newspaper from uh, Holmes the boxer, and it would be Holmes wins another championship, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And of course, it was it was Holmes the boxer. But he and I love sending these uh, these little clippings from the newspaper of just headlines with uh, Holmes in it. Uh, winning another championship or having a great bout or whatever have you. And uh, so the two of us uh, enjoyed uh, the, the the riff on Sherlock Holmes and sports as well. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, for our listeners, if you have not tuned into our other program, which is Trifles, back in Season 3 in 2019, we did a whole series of Sherlock Holmes and sports. So there are 12 episodes, one each month, uh, that we did regarding Sherlock Holmes and sports. Everything from, oh gosh, boxing to uh, billiards to single stick, of course, uh, what else did we have? We had uh, shooting and hunting. And, of course, we wrapped it up uh, with the final episode, episode 156, talking about Sherlock Holmes' Sportsman, that Sports Illustrated article by William S. Baring Gould. Uh, we will have a link uh, to that episode specifically, as well as the full playlist for trifles in the show notes there, if you'd like to check it out. Yep. It was a great series. You guys uh, hit it out of the park with that one. Ah, I see what you did there. Oh, there you go. <laughs> wow. You are you are clearly a guest we should have had on earlier, Mark. <laughs> Maybe you knew better. <laughs> well, uh, I think what, what we'd like to do here with you, since you are a purveyor of all things uh, related to sport and Conan Doyle, we want to 
cover the the breadth of his interest and lead up to uh, this article that you've written for Canadian Homes. Uh, very handy that you happen to be the editor, too. But uh, that is about the Summer Olympics uh, and Conan Doyle. We want to eventually get to that. But let's let's start back with Conan Doyle's own uh, experience with sports and athletics. Where does that begin in his life? It begins pretty much from from him being a little kid. One of the first photos we have of Conan Doyle, he's 14 years old, he's at Stonyhurst, and he's he, he's posed, and he's with a cricket bat. He's in his cricket whites, and he's got a cricket bat. He's 14 years old, and that's one of the first pictures we have of him. Now, we have you know hundreds and hundreds of other photos of Conan Doyle through his life, but one of the first pictures we have is with a cricket bat, and I think that, that kind of sets him up as a sportsman for his entire life. Uh, when he went to Stonyhurst, they had this weird type of cricket um, called Stonyhurst cricket. Um, that was a bizarre version of it. And he played that. And then while he was there, they also brought in what they called London cricket, which was more standard cricket. Um, but he, he was a sportsman from his early days to his last day. He was, uh, and cricket was one of his main sports. He was, he was, uh, an internationally, uh, level cricket player. He played, uh, hundreds and hundreds of matches, but several first class matches. And of course, he played on, um, uh, Barry's team of all the, uh, the Alaka Berries or something, um, like that. It was, uh, a, a team made up of various literary people. And he was no doubt the star player on that team. That's fantastic. So in in his time, that would have been the 1850s, 1860s in his youth. Um, well, actually, 1860s. He was born in 59, if I recall. Um, was it common for cricket to be the introductory sport for most uh, young boys at the time or w- was there another way they uh, that was more universal no for for someone of his class we'll put it that way uh cricket would have been the sport uh he later played uh what we would call soccer uh but he played under a pseudonym ac smith um because it was not the done deal for a gentleman or a doctor at that. No one would visit a doctor who would play soccer. God, uh, you know, you could play uh, rugby uh, or you could play cricket, but soccer was not the done deal. And so at his level uh, of society, cricket was the thing. Um, it was cricket. Well, so what a um, what an amazing a culmination of his athletic prowess and his his dreams probably as a young sportsman to eventually come up against uh was it uh, WG Grace he, Grace? he that's right uh who was known as the doctor um he was uh, probably the most famous cricketer of the age and still is one of the most famous cricketers and uh sure enough he, he came you know, conan doyle um was at bat against grace uh conan doyle was in his prime um grace was not <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh grace still outpolled him he was a, a far better uh player than conan doyle ever was of course um and uh he you know it would, it would be someone along our line um 
you know, seeing Babe Ruth or being against Babe Ruth or at the time, of course, you know, or, you yeah, know, I mean, I could, I could take on Babe Ruth these days easily today. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, I'd, I'd stand a chance, uh, or, or being in, in nets with, uh, Wayne Gretzky coming down, uh, center ice with you. And, you know, Gretzky would still deke us out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, but the- Grace, yeah, Grace was, uh, it, it was a huge, huge accomplishment for Conan Doyle to, uh, to play against him. Um, also, one of the one of the big things in cricket is to get a century or 100 runs. A lot of players will do an entire career without without that level. Um, and he did. He got his century and he kept the bat. Uh, and the bat was mud encrusted and it was in his house. Uh, I interviewed Dean Gene Conor Doyle um, uh, quite a while ago, of course, uh, and she remembered the bat and she remembered the super long ski poles or skis in 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 the house and you know playing playing cricket with her father and being lifted up to shoot billiards uh and she she had a, a lot of really really fond memories of her father and sports and she wanted him mainly to be remembered as an all-rounder uh, not as just a, a cricket player, not just the, the soccer player, uh, as an all-round athlete. And he was. He, 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 anything sports related, he would put his hand to. You know, boxing, cricket, whatever. Whatever. But the lovely thing about that WG Grace match is that, and this is so characteristic, Mark, of Conan Doyle, that he wrote a poem about it. And, um, you know, I don't I don't remember all of it, but it's something like once in the heyday of cricket, one day I shall ever recall. I captured that glorious wicket, the greatest, the grandest of all. And then he goes on, you know, for many, many verses. And uh, I think he I think so that refers to the fact that, um, you know, Grace was out, I think, after uh, something like 100 runs or something like that. But that was a huge accomplishment. And then he published the poem somewhere. Nothing, nothing Doyle did didn't wind up at some level in one of, one of his writings. Uh, and, and that was certainly one of them. Yeah. I guess, uh, I, I certainly don't know his poetry well. I do know that, that poem. Um, and I, I try not to read too much of his poetry, uh, for various reasons. Uh, but, but that is certainly one of his more popular ones because it brings in uh, W.G. Grace, and Grace is so famous. It's called A Reminiscence of Cricket, and it was first published in the Poems of Arthur Conan Doyle Uh, in 1922, published by John Murray. There you go. 1922, so it was very late in his life that it was actually published. Yeah. So, a true reminiscence. And we have a link to that poem on uh, the Arthur Conan Doyle Encyclopedia for folks who wish to know it. A, A great website. It's full of sports. It is. It is. So, so talk to us a little bit about some of Conan Doyle's other sporting interests. He started with cricket. He was certainly passionate about it his whole life. Uh, you, you mentioned skis. You mentioned billiards just then. Um, where else did his interests take him? And, and what was he most passionate about? I'd, I'd say early on in his adulthood, um, and certainly his married life, he, he joined the cycling craze that hit England, Great Britain, and the world. Uh, just, he jumped in with both feet. Uh, thankfully they were on pedals and off he went. He, uh, he, there, there was one 
very famous picture of him and his wife and they're on a tricycle and they're outside their home and he writes to his mother uh basically uh, i think a couple days after he bought the bought the tricycle and he talks to her about doing 20 and 30 mile uh trips on their on their tricycle uh and and to do that you you had to be pretty fit these these were early times and uh you know up and down little English country lanes on a tricycle uh, would be quite the thing to see big Conan Doyle on on the tricycle. Uh, he also, of course, had many bicycles over the years and he even got involved in the auto wheel later in life, uh, which was a contraption that fit on your standard two-wheel bicycle and turned it into basically some kind of little motorized bicycle thing and uh it was one of his investments that he lost a lot of money on uh as it seems was his want uh and certainly bicycling was a a primary focus of him he he put it in a lot of his stories uh you know certainly the solitary cyclist is the obvious one but there's lots of other bicycling allusions in in all the Sherlock Holmes stories and some of his other stories too one of his very early short stories it was kind of a love triangle story and the two men uh involved were trying to win the hand of a woman and they were going to bet on a horse race and one of the horses in this story was named Bicycle so it would be it would be great to find out if he had just recently bought a bicycle. Maybe he bought a bicycle the same day he named the horse. Uh, but he uh, he named a horse uh, in one of his short stories, Bicycle. You know, what's really interesting, Mark, is uh, there is a rumor that Conan Doyle named his bicycle Silver Blaze. I, I would believe that from you. I would believe that. <laughs> Nobody else but you, I'd believe that. Well, it's, it's certainly more interesting than naming your bicycle horse. That's uh, for sure. So, uh, um, so I, I, I want to get back to this, this image of Conan Doyle on a tricycle. Um, his wife was essentially the hood ornament. She, she was up front. Um, being being carried. This this was not a tandem job. He he was doing all of the work uh, on on this uh, contraption. He was he was he was behind, and she was kind of perched in front. She had a little tiny wheel up front that I guess she could maybe hit the brakes or do a little steering with. But the, if you look at the the bicycle, the work is really coming from who's ever in back. Yeah, and. And he was, he was in back. They're both dressed to the nines. Uh, they are showing, it, it was, it was, it was a strand article featuring their, their latest literary lion, Conan Doyle. And it really shows that the Doyles were the height of fashion, both bicycling and, and, uh, uh physical fashion. They were, they were there. They were, they, they've, they've made it. He's successful. He's got a, a bicycle. He's in. He's in the craze, uh, and it, it's a, it's a great picture. And the the story itself by Harry Howe uh, talks about him um, uh, bicycling and how much he enjoyed it. So uh, no doubt, uh, cycling was was a big factor in his life. Uh, he enjoyed it. His his sons uh, took up auto racing. Uh, I think Conan Doyle liked anything with speed, and his his sons certainly spent a lot of his their father's money on uh, on fast cars and early racing, early motor car racing in England. Yeah, 
Well, the um, so so the time that Conan Doyle uh, was highlighted uh, with his wife on the on the bicycle, this would have been his first wife, uh, Louisa or Tui. Um, she had some health issues, didn't she? Oh, quite a bit, quite yeah. a bit, and and uh, maybe it was for the best that she was perched in front. And, and not, <laughs> although I'm not sure if too many of us could pedal around Conan Doyle, so that's uh, <laughs> true. Uh, formidable, no doubt. So, do you think this was a uh, a way to kind of? get her a little more active or get her out in the fresh air. I mean, she suffered from tuberculosis. So this was part of the reason they moved uh, down to Portsmouth. Um, what's, what's the reasoning there with someone who is struggling with health uh, being active or pseudo active alongside someone like Conan Doyle? Well, I think part of it is, is health. Part of it's getting out, getting a boat. Uh, and part of it is the bison craze. Everyone was doing it. He wanted, uh, the two of them to be involved in, in the craze. It was, it was sweeping the world and they wanted to be part of it. So, uh, and, and, you know, they, they were, he was very successful by this time and, it was one of the trappings of success was to follow the fads, follow the, including the, the sporting fads at the time. So I think, uh, she went along with them. Now, you know, she wasn't a, a cricketer. He, he was playing cricket, uh, almost every weekend. Uh, their, their, um, their honeymoon was part of a cricket tour to Ireland. <laughs> so, which sounds very romantic with the rest of the cricket team. I don't know what she thought of it, but that was their uh, their honeymoon. Uh, and I think the the image of her on the bicycle just also he uh, it goes to him being the larger than life presence. Mm. He loved sports. She was going to be involved. Got it. And and she was. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. Talking with uh, Mark Alberstadt about Conan Doyle and sports. When we come back, we'll cover uh, some more of those sports as well as Mark's landmark article about Conan Doyle and the 1912 Summer Olympics. Stay with us. Sherlock Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle have been topics of conversation in the world of literature ever since 1895. Wouldn't it be great to look through all those discussions, have all those articles, reviews, and commentary in one place on your bookshelf? Now you can, because the Wessex Press has published Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle, and The Bookman. All the pastiches, parodies, letters, all the columns and commentaries about Sherlock Holmes from 1895 to 1933 from the finest literary magazine of the 20th century, The Bookman, in one place, bringing back dozens of long-lost commentaries about the chronicles of Sherlock Holmes. Don't wait until this handsome volume is out of print. Get your copy of Sherlock Holmes' Conan Doyle and The Bookman right now at wessexpress.com. You know, one of the lovely things about Conan Doyle is that he did more than share his enthusiasms. He had a certain, I mean, maybe you 
disagree with this sort of slightly, Mark, but the way I see it is that he had sort of a view of what was a, what was right and proper and best about the character of the British public about the character. Now, in these days, of course, the character of the British man, and he never shied away from advocating. And so, you know, he would write an essay about the health effects of bicycling. And then he would discover ski running as an example when he was in um, Norway or Switzerland and then became the early advocate for skiing as a hobby. But this sort of seems to fit to me into into this larger category of of Conan Doyle, you know, the advocate and enthusiasm for national character, but also just for things that he thought, um, you know, epitomized proper, what he would have called proper manhood. Very much so, very much so. Uh, for him, it was it was always amateur sport. Uh, he, he wasn't uh, too keen on the professionals in the sport, but for amateur sport, it showed who you were, what you were made of, and he wanted Britain, of course, made of the best stuff. And for him, the best stuff were athletes. And athletes would would not have just participated in one sport. They would have done everything. Uh, golf, cricket, whatever. As long as they were active and they were good at it and enthusiastic, he was behind them. He would say it would it would make... Britain better. It would make them better. And he was also a, an early advocate of uh, bodybuilding. Uh, he was a, a great friend of a very uh, famous um, bodybuilder of the time. And and he wrote a, an introduction to uh, to this guy's book. And he, he helped judge a bodybuilding contest, in fact. Uh, it was, for him, sport was something to get out get do and get better at and be a, a better person doing. Uh, it's for, it, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, your earlier remark, you said that first photo that we see of Conan Doyle when he's 14, he has a cricket bat. And of course, he was very shaped by his early school experience. And if you are in a school with other boys, the way to popularity, the way to survive um you know, is to really excel at sport. And of course, Conan Doyle had an advantage because he was larger than, <laughs> he was larger than his peers. I mean, in my memory is that he was taller than the average uh, boy or man of his age. And he was also, as you point out, interested in athletics, interested in bodybuilding. He was much more fit. Very much so. And some of the early uh, team pictures of him, it's no problem picking him out of the crowd. He's so much bigger and so much taller. Uh, and, you know, even later in life when um, he, he was touring America and he went to see several baseball games and he wrote a lot about baseball, uh, part of it was he would write about their professionalism. And he, he didn't care for that. You could tell. He wanted uh, England to take up baseball and he thought it would be great on on the summer through the summer and whatnot in but he didn't want the professionals he wanted everybody to just enjoy it for the sport that it was and at one point he, he talks about uh, some of the the professionals in, in in america and he says they're pretty hard looking guys and sure enough you know they they would have been but they were one for the most part they were one sport athletes yeah. And he wanted everybody to enjoy everything. And that uh, that was one issue he had with baseball. But 
he thought baseball would be a great sport for England. You know, it, 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 it takes a couple hours to play an entire game. You're not there for three, four days with a cricket match or something. You know, while, while someone's getting their century, you're in the pavilion just watching and having a smoke. You know, every, everybody's active in, in baseball. You're either in the infield, outfield, whatever, if you're at bat. Yeah. You're pitching, whatever have you. For him, baseball was a great sport, and he advocated for that too. He was uh, he advocated for almost any sport if if you could be active in it, yeah. and and he would love it, and he'd give it a try. There was nothing he wouldn't put his hand at. Right, and the nice thing, well, of course, he also played golf. Now that I think about it, he played he golf in Vermont with Rudyard Kipling. But, that, that's but right. baseball, you know, the lovely thing is, particularly when you're with a stadium full of Americans, there's cheering, you know, and you're really involved. But, um, you know, that gets to sort of this whole idea of the joy of being popularly focused on athletic accomplishment. And that sort of gets us to the Olympics because in 1908, so now Conan Doyle is in his 50s. And in 1908, Britain had a very good showing at the Olympics. But four years later, um, you know, that that wasn't um, something that they maintained and that affected him. Uh, profoundly, didn't it? It really did. The uh, the Olympics they they fell down on were Stockholm, uh, nineteen twelve, and they were the, the the cream of the crop in the previous Olympics. They were the best, and Stockholm comes along, and before the before the Olympics are even over. Everybody in England is either pulling their hair out. They, they don't know what to do. What has happened? It's a national tragedy. Things are, are falling from the sky, may as well. It, it, was, it was that bad. And they placed third uh, well below the upstart American team. And I think that, that hurt him as well. Uh, but it was for him, as we've said, sports is far more than the sport. It is who you are. And for Britain not to win an Olympics or not do well at an Olympics, to see all these other countries on the podium and their teams behind fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth place, that really, really hurt them. And he started writing letters to the editor saying, you know, this cannot happen in four years' time. And he, he advocated for it, as, as you say, he advocated for a lot of sports and whatnot. But the Olympics and a, a really good British Olympic team was in his sights and, and he didn't want to let it go. He, he grabbed that bone and he was, he was going to work it. He was going to work it. Well, and, and to make matters even worse, after Conan Doyle started his uh, letter writing campaign where he was really, um, you know, kind of cajoling the, uh, the country into, um, into in getting into shape and, and uh, you know, kind of shaking this off and, and getting active again. To make matters worse, um, a, as you quote in your article uh, in, uh, the Canadian, in Canadian Homes, uh, at the end of July 1912, there was a letter that appeared in the Evening Standard by a German resident of London uh, saying that uh, Conan Doyle, the greatest novelist recognizes that in making this suggestion, a British Empire team is tacitly admitting that you no longer in your country of England have men fit to compete with those of other nations in a field which you once rightly considered to be your own. Your people are getting over-civilized and you are becoming what you call soft. 
That had to be the yes. ultimate insult to Conan yes. Doyle. Now, now, this is where we put in the apology to our German listeners. But also, <laughs> also if, they're Scott, still if they're still listening. You also, know, Scott, Scott your, your monocle slipped there. Do you want to just take a minute? And we have our ways. We, we have our ways, but. Yeah. It, 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 it's it's and, true. And I, it, it's a great letter. And I, when I found it, I, I couldn't not it is, put it. It is great. And and I'll, I'll go even one further. The conclusion there, which I didn't read before, really is reminiscent of Mycroft Holmes. He says, no, you sit down in your easy chairs, which you make fat and heavy, and you write letters to the editor. Which Conan Doyle loved to do, and was rather fat and heavy in his easy chair. He was, now but... That, now that, interestingly enough, I never thought about that, but that... that um, that particular sentence now, you sit down in your easy chair and you write letters to the editor. How interesting the um, link back to Von Bork and his that narration in his last bow, that conversation in his last bow, where he describes a somnambulant and how and how much Martha the housekeeper is like the average British person. How interesting. I wonder if there's a link between that letter and that characterization. Well, and, and let's also recall that uh, Von Bork, and I, I guess it was the discussion with uh, Von Herling, he was saying you beat them at their own sports. You play polo against them, right. uh, you know, and, and so saying how you know he is he is shaming the english by beating them at their own games and and conan doyle would have he, he, although he wrote it he obviously would have been been smarting from it uh anyone beating beating england at english sports oh what a tragedy what a tragedy uh, it's a good thing they didn't in, invent ice hockey here Canada wouldn't have been kicked out of the empire. So. <laughs> well, hey, let's not go all Toronto Maple Leafs on us now, right? No one would. No <laughs> one. Would. <laughs> I am in Halifax. You know, so. uh, and it would be interesting to know if that German um, writer to the Times, I believe, um, ever read all of the Sherlock Holmes stories and saw himself as Von Bork. Maybe, maybe there was something there. Maybe I'll have to uh, track down that uh, that letter writer and uh, find out for for a future future podcast. His his work with the Olympics was was tireless. He he wrote all kinds of letters extolling the virtues of the Olympics, the virtues of amateur sport, and the need for Britain to put together a good rational program to create a great team for the next Olympics. Now, the next Olympics didn't ha happen because of World War uh, One, the breakout of World War One. but he, uh, he, he helped create a subcommittee of the British Olympics Committee, and they were tasked to raise funds, but also raise the awareness of the importance of of the Olympics uh, around Britain, uh, eventually they they finally did go to the public uh, seeking a, a fund to to support athletes. Uh, originally, Conan Doyle thought ten thousand pounds would be enough. Uh, the uh, committee uh, eventually asked for a hundred thousand pounds, which he was. Gobsmacked. He he claims he was out of the country at the time. I didn't know anything about it, but whatever happened, the the committee asked for a hundred thousand pounds. This is 
back in 1912, 1913, that you could have bought probably Oxford for, for less than that. So it was, it was a huge amount. It certainly wasn't a trifling sum of money. I thought I'd just throw that in. And, and, <laughs> I appreciate that. And by the time they, uh, they eventually dissolved this committee that, that Lord Northcliffe had asked Conan Doyle to be part of, they had raised just a pittance. Uh, I think it was uh, 10, 11,000 pounds, uh, a small fraction of what they were really going for. And that money was to find athletes all across England. Uh, you know, they were going beat the hedgerows. They were going go to the farms. They were going to find athletes who weren't necessarily on sporting teams, find them and say, hey, you're a great discus player. You're, you know, you could throw the javelin or, you know, or hurdles or whatever have you. Um, although you may have worked all your life on a farm. He was, they were going scour the country, find the best athletes, and they were also going find professional coaches and they would be specialized in certain sports and they would train these people. And they were also, uh, he also wanted a, uh, a series of competitions uh, leading up to the Olympics, uh, that would kind of winnow down the, the best of the best. And at the time, the best of the best stayed home. They didn't go to the Olympics. They, they went to Wimbledon. You know, they played cricket. They know, you know, the Olympics weren't that important to them. Conan Doyle saw otherwise because he saw the national pride of other teams. And he wanted the same kind of pride for England. And it just wasn't happening. Mm. And, and the, the great irony is, uh, you know, just a year or two later, um, Great Britain would enter the Great War uh, where, you know, uh, athletic prowess or at least physical prowess was required to uh, sustain life in uh, certainly in the trenches, but uh, certainly army life beyond that as well. Uh, so this search for athletes was almost uh, concurrent with the need for physically fit men who could uh, fight on behalf of the empire? That's right, and uh, you know the, the the war certainly garnered a lot of nationalism. And Conan Doyle was such a such strong nationalist. We all know he uh, he wrote pamphlets and whatnot. But he saw sports as a way to that end. If you if you were a great athlete. You could be a, a great soldier. And coming back from the Boer War, he noticed a lot of the uh, the British soldiers, when they were fighting the Boers, would use a lot of ammunition to hit one Boer. One, you know, the the Boers who were on on their horses and were all all farmers could take a couple pot shots and hit a couple British people, uh, British soldiers. And he he came back along with Rudyard Kipling. And started uh, a series of um, shooting competitions uh, to train uh, just average people like you and I on how to use uh, rifles and how to shoot. And he set up a Conan Doyle um, award for shooting. And uh, I'm going to be writing on this, uh, this this summer. And that award is still uh, given out today. It's hmm. been going on since, uh, I believe, 1906 was the first time. And if you're in a British shooting club and you're very good and you're competing uh, nationally, you'll often compete for the Conan Doyle Award. Hmm. 
And, and that uh, goes right back to the Boer War and Conan Doyle's thoughts on, uh, on uh, how everybody should know how to shoot. What a, what a missed opportunity to call it the Colonel Moran Award. Oh, that would have been so good. <laughs> uh, and and it, w- it was an early version of the NRA, the British National Rifle Association. And so Conan Doyle and the NRA, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because you, you bring up the point there, Mark, of Conan Doyle, um, you know, kind of advocating for uh, athleticism, advocating for this kind of national pride. And yet um, in his effort to uh, help the British Olympic Committee uh, raise funds, which, again, he, he thought they, they overshot with their estimate. Um, and, and in 1914, uh, they, had, they admitted they only raised just under 11,000 pounds. And years later, Conan Doyle uh, wrote it up in, I think it was in Memories and Adventures, he must have mentioned it, um, how he was uh, sorely disappointed in the effort. And not, not just the the outpouring or lack of outpouring of support, but uh, the lack of recognition that he got from that effort. You want to read that quote and talk about it a little bit? Yeah, he, he, it started when he got a, uh, a telegram from Lord Northcliffe, the, uh, the publisher of pretty much everything in England at the time. He was a, a very famous uh, person at the time. Uh, Lord Northcliffe uh, telegrammed Conan Doyle, and he, he, Conan Doyle said, quote, in for about as much trouble as any communications which he ever received. And it left him on his guard against Northcliffe telegrams after that. Um, Northcliffe urged him to join the British Olympic uh, Committee. And he, he said uh, Conan Doyle had the ability to rally the, the country around him. Um, but by the end of it, uh, Conan Doyle said it was uh, it was a year of his life, and it was a wasted time. It was it, which which is sad for him to say. He was so active and so much. He, he wrote so many letters. He just didn't see it come together. And that uh, that initial telegram from Lord Northcliffe would forever put him on his guard. Uh, unfortunately, Lord Northcliffe donated a lot of money to the committee and then just disappeared, leaving Conan Doyle kind of sitting there. Uh, and there, there was a committee. Conan Doyle was part of it. Uh, but the, uh, the overall uh, Olympic committee and o- Olympic work that he did kind of left him disappointed and sad, which, which is unfortunate. Uh, you know, not all countries are going to be on the top of the podium. Uh, we know that uh, Conan Doyle wouldn't accept it. Hmm. Well, I guess we're we're thankful for a man who was not satisfied with the status quo and who was always uh, striving for higher. I think uh, you know, as anyone with high standards like that, it's always uh, a, a difficult wake up call when uh, the rest of society does not kind of rise to the level of your expectations. Um, you know, and certainly Conan Doyle, whether it was uh, his first wife who didn't necessarily share his uh, impressive love of sport uh, at the same level he did, or whether it was the general public, uh, Conan Doyle may have been uh, frustrated in those regards and, and simply continued on 
his own. I mean, he he was uh, fairly active in many things uh, right through the end of his life. Very much. He, uh, of course, I, I mentioned cricket. He he uh, didn't continue cricket through his older age, but it is a very active sport. He, uh, I forget where it was said, but he, he got a cricket ball on uh, the side of his knee uh, at one time, and I, I don't think he ever fully recovered from that to play cricket, but he certainly was, was active in everything else, um, including billiards. You mentioned billiards. He got to the quarterfinal of the British Amateur Championships. Uh, and, and that, you know, that alone, that, that's pretty good to, to get that far. Now, of course, he was wealthy. He had time on his hands. He had a billiards room in his house. He could practice whenever he wanted. Uh, I don't know how much he slept, but he, if he was, you know, up at two a.m. one day, why not shoot a few, <laughs> shoot a few balls in the billiards room? Uh, but he was very, very good at it too. You know, a lot of us can play sports, but few of us would play as many sports and at the level that he did. And I think we have to remember that Conan Doyle. You know, we we like to think of him as that gentleman with the big mustache and at his desk writing all these stories and Sherlock Holmes this and the, the, the spiritualism that. But we have to remember he was a competitor through and through. He was a competitor in his sports. He was a competitor in his amateurism. And he was a competitor when it came to his writing. You, you know, we, we think of him as, as the writer for The Strand, but he wrote for so many other journals. And when he was doing that, he was telling other writers... I'm everywhere. I am everywhere. You're a publisher. Your publisher's good, but they'll take anything from me. So he was, he was competitive with everything he did. And, and that pretty much until his end, because he passed that competitivism along to his, his sons and, and, and Jean too. She was, she was a competitor. Uh, as I said, uh, there was one story she told us. They were playing cricket in their backyard and, uh, Conan Doyle was at bat, he hits the bat, and he hits the ball, and smashes little Jean in the face with the, with the cricket ball. And uh, so she, she said she wasn't really hurt, but she said forever after, they played with a, uh, a soft, squishy ball. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows if he would have done that if he had hit Adrian or one of, one of his sons in the face with the, with the ball, but he certainly uh, changed Changed things when uh, he hit little Gene in in the face, and you know the, the boys loved their fast cars, and he would go for a spin with them. Uh, he got several speeding tickets when he was at the wheel. And uh, Bert, you mentioned that he he never did anything that didn't wind up in uh, in one of his writings. Well, at one time he flipped his car coming into the estate. He hit the uh, one of the posts uh, leading into the estate, and. He was trapped under the car. Uh, thankfully, he was doing bodybuilding, or he says, uh, thankfully at the time he was bodybuilding, and he was able to hold the car up on uh, against his spine, and it, it didn't cripple him, obviously. Uh, and, uh, you know, people rushed over and were able to, to write the car. That turned into a, a story later in life where the two people in the car didn't quite make it, and they're looking at the scene of the and they're both ghosts looking at the, or spirits, I guess, uh, looking at the at the scene of the accident. Uh, so whatever it was, Conan Doyle would write about. Uh, he didn't write much about billiards, uh, but I'm, I'm sure if we if we delve into it, there's somewhere in there there's billiards, no doubt. Uh, and 
there, there's just it, it, it's a deep it's a deep subject of Conan Doyle and, and sports. He just loved his sports, and, and we we could talk forever. That's that's really <laughs> fascinating, Mark. And you know, I, it's probably buried somewhere in the literature that he named his uh, billiards table desk. Note he did spend a lot of time there. Oh, I'll I'll just be spending some time at my desk. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you for joining us at the desk here of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere. Uh, we will have uh, lots of uh, links in the show notes, including how to subscribe to Canadian Homes, where you can read Mark's fascinating article on Arthur Conan Doyle and the 1912 Summer Olympics. Mark, thank you for joining us here. Thanks for the invite. I'll talk on this subject anytime you guys call. We love Sherlock Holmes and it's wonderful to take some time and talk to someone like Mark, who is so enthusiastic and informed and knowledgeable about Conan Doyle and lay out these events in Conan Doyle's life, these aspects of his character, his enthusiasm, and then look at how that translates into Holmes. I think it's it's really wonderful. And Conan Doyle, you know, the, one of these people, the more you find out about him, it's one of the reasons why there's so many biographies existing of Conan Doyle, that the more you find out about him, the more interesting he becomes. Yeah, I mean, he was his own walking Olympic Games, when you think about it. Um, and, you know, interesting, because uh, Mark did share the, the full article with us. There was a quote in there where uh, Conan Doyle thought that boxing and wrestling should not be included in the Olympic Games. And look, I took a course as an undergraduate, as a classics major called Sport in the Ancient World. And we studied the ancient Olympics. And guess what? Wrestling was the original Olympic sport. So for Conan Doyle to say that the that, that wrestling does not belong in the modern Olympics is anathema to anyone who knows and understands Olympic history. Yes, that's true. But his his rationale for that was that unlike other sports, Boxing and wrestling were more prone to moments of anger, moments of heat, moments of physical injury. And it's another case of him being focused on athletic excellence um, that can be expressed in a way that doesn't result in anger or potential injury to someone else. So I thought that the rationale was nice. Well, I mean, that's easy for a guy to say who hit his daughter in the face with a cricket ball. <laughs> <laughs> He probably saw Gene's reaction and uh, and corrected himself. Well, uh, fascinating stuff. And, you know, interesting, too, as, as we look at the similarities and differences in the Sherlock Holmes stories, that uh, I believe it was in The Yellow Face where Watson said, Sherlock Holmes rarely took exercise for exercise's own sake. Uh, Holmes was certainly fit. Uh, he was capable of... Uh, large bursts of energy, but he was not someone who simply exercised just to keep it up. And, you know, that that in some way must have been anathema to Conan Doyle, uh, but at the same time was very consistent with Sherlock Holmes's personality that, can you imagine him spending long, mindless hours at a gymnasium just working on his body? 
Well, there's a lot going on there. You know, you could say to yourself that, um, you know, Watson's knowledge and observation of Holmes was sketchy and incomplete as his observations of the world as we as we see his work with Sherlock Holmes become sketchy and incomplete at times. Because Holmes, after all, while he may never have exercised vigorously, or at least not in Watson's presence, is fit enough to bend this poker, you know, in the, in the famous speckled band incident. And then there are plenty of times when, you know, he has to defend himself and he's in scrapes and scuffles and things like that. Or he's, and look at the famous, <laughs> one of the all-time great um, accomplishments in field running is, of course, Holmes' performance in The Final Problem actually, as recorded in The Empty House, when he tells us that uh, from the his perch there on the ledge of Reichenbach, he eventually took to his feet and two weeks later found himself in Florence. What a run! That is that is amazing. And, and he covered, didn't he say he covered some 10 miles before sunset that, that very evening? Um, you know, that's, that's like a half marathon, uh, nearly. Mm-hmm. So um, that, great point about Holmes's just level of fitness. And, you know, just take the incident in the opening of uh, Black Peter where he comes back from Allardyce's butcher shop where he spent a couple of hours trying to spear a pig hanging on a rope I mean, with a harpoon. That That yeah. is no uh, slouch either. Yeah. No, of course, what what Watson and the editors haven't told us is that uh, there there wasn't any rope and the pig was actually quite <laughs> quite frisky. And that's one of the reasons why it took Holmes such a long time, because it just kept dodging out of the Stop way until moving. Holmes got exhausted. Yeah. Well, you know, that's interesting because I think about, and we may have talked about this on an episode of Trifles, but I think about the physics of... Of, of the pig hanging there, like a punching bag in, in boxing training. And mm. it would be swinging. And it's a lot different than if a pig were stationary, like like uh, Black Peter would have been, standing and then shoved up against the wall. Uh, well, of course, it would have been difficult or impossible to transfix a pig hanging by the rope. The physics simply don't work. Yeah. Well, also, one of the things that, that we should have been told but but have never been told is that is that after each successful connection between Holmes' harpoon and that uh, poor body of the pig, a bell would ring and Holmes would get a small stuffed prize. (laughs) Or uh, a bacon cheese buddy. Well, you may recall us speaking to playwright David McGregor here on episode 140, The good news is our friends at MX Publishing now have some of David McGregor's work in stock. Three new books by David McGregor, including Sherlock in Love, the Holmes Adler Mysteries. These are a triptych of plays that first appeared at the Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan. The Adventure of the Elusive Ear, The Adventure of the Fallen Souffle, and The Adventure of the Ghost Machine. All three are creative and bring Holmes into contact with other people whom you may have heard of, including Vincent Van Gogh, Auguste Escoffier, and Tesla and Edison. Adding to the other group of books is David's two-volume series, Sherlock Holmes, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In these books, David takes us on a journey 
through the late 1800s, early 1900s, through the end of the 20th century and into the 21st, as Sherlock Holmes has been played by so many different actors and was brought to life by so many different forces. David takes us through these various times and introduces us to names that you may be familiar with and names that may be new to you. All three of these books are available at mxpublishing.com today. Well, you know that song? That means it's time for everyone's favorite quiz show... That's right, it's Canonical Couplet, where we give you two lines of poetry, and you have to guess the Sherlock Holmes story we are referring to. Now, if you were here with us on episode 217, you'll recall that we gave you this clue. Watson rushed to Mary, said, I'm off to Birmingham, and downstairs in a cab, he met a Cockney city man. Bert, do you know... Which story we are talking about here? Yes, of course I do. This is the great case of Mrs. Neville St. Clair, who turns to Sherlock Holmes when her laundry service delivers her ruined undergarments. This is the case Watson called The Van with the Twisted Slip. There's something twisted about this. That is for sure. That is for sure. No, no, uh, you, and you're not even close. I thought you were you were getting somewhere with uh, with the man with the oh. twisted limp, but no, we were looking for the stockbroker's clerk. Oh, of course. Or the stockbroker's clerk, if you are uh, pronouncing this in the British dialect, which our friend Eric Decker has picked up on with his entry. He said it's the story where ACD tried to irritate Americans by using words we pronounce differently over here. The lieutenant and the clerk put basil in their tomato yogurt. Then I realized it was the story of the stockbroker's clerk. Well, thank you, Eric, for getting in on the, uh, the spirit of the British pronunciation there. And now we'll get in on the spirit of selecting a winner. So let's get the big prize wheel out here and give it a big spin. Moves around, slowing down, easing and landing on number 82. Number 82. Wow, that's up there high out of 100. Number 82 corresponds to Charlie Blankstein. Charlie. Well, congratulations to you, Charlie. We will be sending out that prize from our iHose vaults, which this time around, I believe, was a collection of Sherlock Holmes quiz books and puzzles. So stay tuned for that. And now we are ready for this episode's canonical couplet. Bert, are you ready? Oh, yes, absolutely. Here we go. A furtive physiologist who now ignores his secretary will owe his life to Watson in case that's cautionary. If you know the answer to this week's canonical couplet, put it in an email addressed to comment at IHearOfSherlock.com. We will attempt to draw you at random if you are correct, and you will win a prize. Good luck. Well, make sure you put canonical couplet in the email 
that you send to us, and um, we will have this wonderful prize for you out of our vaults. It's it's well, you'll have to stay tuned to see what it is because it's something that you will absolutely adore. Well, Bert, as much as I adore the time here with you, I think the time has come for us to wish everyone adieu. I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. You know, it seems seems we just get started. When uh, it's time, we've got to say so long. I'm tugging at my earlobe <laughs> furtively and furiously right now. Well, until the next time we meet, I remain the always together Scott Monty. And I am the poet laureate Bert Wolder. And together we say, The The Games of Foot! (laughs) The The Games of Foot! I'm afraid that in the pleasure of this conversation, I'm neglecting business of importance, which awaits me elsewhere. Thank you for listening. Please be sure to join us again for the next episode of I Hear of Sherlock Everywhere, the first podcast dedicated to Sherlock Holmes. Goodbye, and good luck, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. 